As we continue our series this week about what it means to be the church, we will take some time to explore what it means to care for the poor. Now, before I begin, I want to say a word about the poor and what that might mean. Because when we talk about the poor, there's a risk of turning this into an us and them sort of dynamic, when in fact it really is just us together. Who are the poor? Is it the homeless man with a can full of change on the street? Is it a family who is living paycheck to paycheck and is suddenly hit with a medical expense that derails their entire budget? Is it a couple living in a nice, beautiful, big house that they can't afford, uh, laying awake at night and struggling to figure out how they're gonna pay their bills? Who are the poor? The poor are many people and could be any of us. You know, if, if my math is correct, I, I think I have a negative net worth, I'm pretty sure. And I don't think of myself as being poor, someone else might. Um, but the truth is, it probably wouldn't take much in my life to see that that's what I become, you know, with the wrong confluence of circumstances. So I want to be sensitive when we talk about the poor and who the poor are. As we look at this text in which Jesus says, the poor will always be with you. These are words that Jesus utters to Judas in this text. And if we're being honest, they probably don't sit well with us. People have often told me that this is their least favorite passage in the entire Bible. <laughs> they seem at a glance to fly in the face of everything that Jesus taught us about caring for the poor, as if to suggest that it isn't all that important for us to look out for one another after all. As if to say, don't worry about giving that homeless guy or that poor family a few bucks or a hot meal or a place to sleep. He'll still be poor tomorrow. But now we're putting words in Jesus' mouth. That's not what he said. So let's focus on what he did say. In this text from the Gospel of John, Jesus is actually quoting scripture from the book of Deuteronomy, which I'll get to a little later. And his concern for the poor is real, recognizing that we have to care for one another, not just today, but tomorrow too. A reading from the Gospel of John. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. There they gave a dinner for him. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those at the table with him. Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard and anointed Jesus' feet and then wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? He said this not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. He kept the common purse and used to steal what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Please pray with me. Everlasting God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations upon all of our hearts serve to glorify you. 
And may they be in keeping with the teachings of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. So somewhere in Texas, there is a 500-foot shaft that tunnels through the solid limestone of a lonely mountain. Now this shaft is filled with arcane mechanisms, a literal clockwork of stainless steel, titanium and ceramic ball bearings. It is an elaborate handcrafted latticework of gears and pins that slide in and out of their grooves, a kind of analog computer that conducts an infinite orchestra of chimes in sequences that will never repeat themselves. Chimes composed by legendary keyboardist Brian Eno. A long staircase spirals around the shaft and its mechanisms up towards a distant pinprick of light. And there at its summit, you will find something truly remarkable. It is a massive clock. Though it bears little resemblance to any clock you've ever seen. It does have hands, though, the smallest of which marks the passing of a century, ticking once every 100 years. And every thousand years, a solitary little cuckoo bird emerges from its steel nest to announce the passing of another millennium before retreating back into its housing to spend the next 10 centuries alone. This clock is not finished, but it is real. This is the clock of the long now, sometimes called the millennium clock or the 10,000 year clock because it was designed to last for at least 10,000 years. Now that's, that's no small feat of engineering, building something that may well outlast humanity, much less something mechanical that will continue to function for that long. Materials, temperature, the collection of dust, the very rotation of the earth, all of it has to be accounted for to ensure that not even a single gear is worn down, that not even the smallest pin slips out of place for 10,000 years. My father would have adored this clock. He was an admirer and collector of timepieces especially wristwatches, and he believed that a wristwatch is a, is a classic symbol of refined masculinity. Every man needs to own a good watch, he told me when I came of age. Imagine his disappointment when he took me to buy one and I picked out uh, a little unisex watch with a thin leather strap and a, a black rose embossed on the plate. I was going through a goth phase, okay? goth phase that lasted 40 years. <laughs> My poor father. At least the watch was cheap. The clock of the long now, of course, is very expensive. The clock is still under construction, but Amazon and uh, founder and CEO Jeff Bezos has already committed $42 million to the project on behalf of the Long Now Foundation, a think tank that focuses on extremely long-term endeavors like this one. Incidentally, it's also being built on Jeff Bezos' personal property. He owns the mountain, which is situated right next to his spaceship hangar, where his Blue Origin spaceflight project is also under development. It kind of sounds like a kid's playset, like something my, 
my kids would play with, a mountain fortress with its own spaceport. Maybe men never really grow up. Maybe our toys just get bigger and more expensive. Now, Bezos is a very forward-thinking guy, to be sure. No one can doubt that. But the clock was not his idea. It's actually the brainchild of a computer scientist and inventor named Danny Hillis, who first came up with the idea back in 1986. He's heading up the project now, and he is a fervent believer in everything that it stands for. Namely, that it's a monument to the future and a reminder that we still have one. I cannot imagine the future, but I care about it, Hillis wrote back in 1995. I know I am part of a story that starts long before I can remember and continues long beyond when anyone will remember me. I plant my acorns knowing that I will never live to harvest the oaks. I have hope for the future. It is an admirable sentiment. And in many ways, Hillis is an admirable guy. He, he also started a biotech research company to advance cancer research. But he abandoned that project when he was finally given a chance to actually build the clock of his dreams. And I can't help but feel like his goodwill is a little bit misplaced here. I think this is the most important thing I can work on, Hillis says of the clock, more than cancer. Over the long run, I think this will make more difference to more people. Hillis seems to think that it is more noble to invest in something that will outlast humanity than to invest in something that will help humanity to last. Which begs a philosophical question about time, a question posed by the millennium clock itself. Should our attention be fixed on the distant future or on the here and now? In essence, this is the same question that Jesus poses to Judas in this little house in Bethany. When Martha's sister Mary pours this extravagantly expensive perfume on his head, anointing him, Jesus complains that the perfume should have been sold and the money given to the poor. To which Jesus famously replies, the poor will always be with you, Judas. And here we face this dilemma of time. Should we help the poor now, right this minute? Or does really caring for the poor require us to take a longer view? Should we be more concerned with a bottle of perfume that could feed a few people or the larger systemic problems that leave people poor in the first place? Now, it might seem at a glance as though Jesus is being fatalistic here, as if he's suggesting that poverty can never be eradicated. But I would suggest that he's actually being a little sarcastic, given that we're told Judas is a thief who would have stolen the money given half a chance, and that he's already been pilfering funds from the common purse, something that I have to imagine Jesus was probably aware of. The poor will always be with you, Judas as if to say, you don't care about these people, but those who you rob from will always continue to haunt you. Jesus is taking Judas down a peg, but he's also quoting scripture here from the book of Deuteronomy. And specifically in that text we read, since the poor will always be with you, I therefore command you, open your hand to the poor and needy neighbor in your land. 
Now, a lot of people struggle with Jesus' words in this text, but I think he's really encouraging us to take a longer view in regards to eradicating poverty. It's a matter of charity versus justice. The former is immediate, but justice has a long arc. It takes time. And it takes debate, and it takes consensus, and consensus is generally in short supply. Critics of the 10,000-year clock sound a lot like Judas in this text, and I, 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 I can't say that they're wrong, really. Why spend $42 million on a glorified wristwatch when that money could be used to help people in need? And when the money is coming from Jeff Bezos, a man with a net worth of $124 billion, a man who earns the median annual salary of the average Amazon worker every nine seconds, who until recently has given less than a tenth of a percent of his wealth to philanthropic causes, it's easy to point the finger. Bezos is an easy target, even if we're the ones buying all that clown makeup on Amazon. It's a goth phase, all right? Bezos is also, along with the rest of the billionaire class, at the center of an economic debate about class warfare and the distribution of wealth. Now, as I understand it, advocates of trickle-down economics argue that men like Bezos are good for the economy because they drive innovation and they create jobs. Others claim that the ultra-rich like him stifle competition, they create low-paying jobs, and they enjoy a disproportionately large influence in our politics. Throw in other controversial considerations like wealth taxes and the idea of a universal basic income, you find yourself wading into an enormously complicated debate that I don't feel quite qualified to speak to. And frankly, that's not my job. I'm not an economist. I'm not a politician. I'm a theologian and a pastor. And it is my job to point out that while we're all arguing about the best economic policies, the poor are struggling. While we debate the virtues and vices of philanthropy and taxes, someone's clock is winding down, running out of time. The arc of justice is long, but in the meantime, people need to eat. And that's where the church comes in. The poor will always be with you. So we open our hands to the poor and the needy neighbor in our land. Whether we do it now or later, whether we seek charity or justice, is an academic question. It's also a false dichotomy. Being the church means that we have to strive for both. A colleague of mine once told me about a, a ragged, apparently down-on-his-luck man who wandered into his church's annual meeting. He sat quietly in the back as the members of the church talked and argued about the annual budget and the interest on their mortgage and whether or not they ought to vote to approve an emergency line of credit. The man who'd only been seeking a little respite from the cold, he finally couldn't stand it any longer. He, he stood up in the middle of the meeting and he, he declared, you know, the only thing you people seem to care about is money. I've been sitting here listening to you and that's all you talk about. Debts, mortgages, salaries, not a single word about mission or helping the poor. The room grew silent. The people gathered around him seemed quietly convicted. 
Why, if Jesus himself walked in here, the man said, I bet you'd throw him out. The congregation seemed to think about that for a moment. And then they threw the guy out. A church needs to care for itself, yes, but it also needs to care for others. It needs to seek both charity and justice in the short term and in the long term. And here we strive to do both of those things. We tend to immediate needs with our Pad's homeless shelter that houses 50 people every Sunday night of the year, offers them three square meals, a place to take a shower and do some laundry. We're also the largest supporter in town, if I'm not mistaken, of the Glen Ellen walk-in ministry, which provides immediate relief to people who can't pay their bills this month. Now, taking the long view, striving for greater change, we partner with Bridge Communities to help people like Alba, who we heard about this morning, who our mentors supported for two years while she got her degree and a better job and a home for her family. We work with DuPage United, to address more systemic issues in our community like the lack of affordable housing or mental health services that literally leave people out in the cold. We recently, uh, with DuPage United, just struck a deal with Governor Pritzker to subsidize hospitals who treat people in the throes of mental health crisis instead of throwing them out in the street or in jail. We have to make sure people have food on their table and a roof over their head right now today, but we also have to believe that they have a future and we have to work for it and we have to fight for it no matter how long it takes. I read a story once called Long Dream by a Japanese storyteller named Junji Ito. It was a man, about a man, the story was about a man in the hospital who suffers from a mysterious ailment, namely long dreams. Every time he closes his eyes, he finds that he has vivid dreams in real time, and they, they keep on getting longer. At first, if he sleeps for an hour, it'll feel like two or five. An entire day passes in his sleep, and then a week, and then a month. Last night, he wearily explains to his doctor, I lived for an entire year. The man grows increasingly haggard and sickly, and he even appears to be getting older, somehow aging along with his long dreams. Some of his dreams are pleasant enough, but others are nightmares that last for years. And as his nocturnal visions continue to drag on, lasting for decades, entire lifetimes passing in the night, his doctors race against time to try to find a cure for this bizarre illness. But in the midst of these long dreams, this man is dying. And finally, after about a month in the hospital, he tells his doctor that he dreamed for a thousand years in the space of one night's slumber. And later that day, he finally passes, leaving the reader to wonder if he's found peace from his dreams or if he's now trapped in a dream that will never end. The foundation of the long now with its 10,000 year clock wants to remind people of the vast expanse of time that we occupy. And yes, it's important, maybe it's more important now than it's ever been that we keep an eye on the future and the time to come. It's important that we have long dreams, that we take the long view, plant seeds for things that will grow long after we're gone. 
but long dreams cannot be sustained without immediate sustenance. We can't ignore the problems around us right now. And instead of investing in something that outlasts humanity, like a giant clock, I'd rather invest in something that helps humanity to last. I'd rather invest in the work that this church does every day to help people who need it. And we could argue all day long about whether caring for the needs of the poor is a job for the government or for billionaire philanthropists or for regular folks like you and I. And those are conversations that need to be had. Those are conversations that change the way we think about the world, that change policy, that change the fabric of people's lives. But in the meantime, the clock is ticking. People need help. They need it now. They'll need it later. They need us to be the church today and tomorrow. Amen.